Welcome to Chaos to Clarity. On this episode, Eric talks with Ted Harrington, renowned security expert and best-selling author of Hackable, to discuss the secrets of thinking like a hacker, how contrarian thinking can unlock new opportunities in life, and to trade intriguing stories that highlight the power of persuasion and social engineering, especially for founders in need of a breakthrough. Enjoy the show. All right, I am here with Ted Harrington, best-selling author, TED Talker, and hacker extraordinaire. How you doing, Ted? Good to see you, Eric. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Great to have you on the show. We met a while ago in kind of our mutual CTO community, but really hit it off just because we're both kind of we're both hackers at heart, and we both have kind of come up through the trenches of doing maybe some some naughty things uh, <laughs> in the digital space <laughs> growing up. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about how you know your story and how you've come up through the through the ranks as a hacker and now put on the white hat and are now helping other companies make their products more secure. Uh-huh. But just to get started, you know, I want to hear about your journey. So what uh, put that, that passion in you for, for computers in general and, and hacking more specifically? Well, you frame that as that you and I are, are hackers. I would posit that everyone has a hacker in them. And the question is whether or not they allow themselves to let their hacker out. So we'll talk about that idea, I think, throughout our conversation. That's, that's yeah. a, rev- a realization I think I came to only recently, like only in the past couple of years, because for a long time in, in my career, you know, people call me a hacker. And for a long time, I was like, I'm not a hacker because I'm not the guy <laughs> who is behind a terminal hammering on some app or something. And then as I realized, well, what is a hacker? And a hacker is a creative problem solver. A hacker is someone who is contrarian in the way they think. They look at a situation, they say, well, can I do it differently? And I was like, oh, that's 100% me. And <laughs> so to answer your question more directly, I mean, how I, how I got to this was really through entrepreneurship. And mm-hmm. I've just, that's, even since I was a little kid, I knew that what I wanted to do was build things and build companies and solve problems. And I started my first company when I was in college and it, it went pretty well, it was profitable, but I didn't, I really didn't want to do that anymore. So by the time I graduated, I then decided that I wanted to get some experience from other entrepreneurs. And so I wound up working for a cool little entrepreneurial organization in San Diego. And then I became the CEO of this water tech company. And it was an interesting time because that was when, I mean, you live in California. You remember when there was those massive droughts, like there People were telling us in California, like not to water the lawn and not to take showers certain days. And yeah. I was like, this is the perfect time for a product that saves water. Like the timing couldn't be perfect. And that was when I realized that <laughs> people aren't really willing to spend money ever on anything, uh-huh. including things that they need. So that, that company wasn't going that well at the time. And uh, that was when I met the guy who became my business partner. And his name's Steve. He came out of the PhD program at Johns Hopkins. And they had they were doing these really cool things around hacking cars and hacking phones and just really interesting stuff. And it, it was one of those like the universe aligned type moments because yeah. what he was looking for was someone to help him grow a comp- this, this idea of this company. Yeah, I mean, and I was looking for a company that had certain values to it or at least a profession <laughs> that had those values. And those values were things like doing things that are difficult and serving others and things that help force you to get better every day. 
And that, those three things, those really are the definition of the security profession. And when we lined up, it was like, we got to do this. And so he and I, that was about 11 years ago. And uh, we've been building this ethical hacking company for all those years together. And, uh, and then a couple of years ago, within that, we started another company that's a software product that helps large enterprises deal with managing their risk of their vendors and third parties. So I really learned it through entrepreneurship. I mean, like day one of when I started doing this hacking company with Steve, I didn't know anything. <laughs> I was like, I was literally <laughs> learning it as I go. And I'm like, okay, well, I kind of understand how like buyers and customers think, I understand maybe aspects of marketing, I understand leadership and mentorship, but I didn't understand security. And yeah. that was really invigorating to me to be in a position where it's like, I don't know anything, it's time to learn it. And 11 years later, I have a best-selling book on the topic. So like, I, I kind of look yeah. at myself as the example for anyone who's like, oh, it's too late. I can't learn that thing. I don't know enough. I don't have the whatever. Be like, if, if I can do it, you could definitely do it. That's interesting. So it was, it was sort of about discovering your inner hacker or, or discovering that mindset. Um, yeah. So what is that? What were some of those war stories or so those crazy projects that you guys worked on? Oh man, we've, we've seen so many cool things. One that's, <laughs> one of the dramatic, there's so many dramatic ones, but one of the really dramatic <laughs> ones was, uh, I remember this, we were all sitting around one day and we're doing this thought exercise. And the thought exercise is, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? What's the worst thing that could happen as a result of a security breach? And it's a pretty creative group. So we came up with a lot of different things that would be pretty bad if they happen. But certainly <laughs> at the top of that list in terms of impact, at least in my opinion, was, well, what if someone got hurt or what if someone died as a result uh -huh. of a security incident? So we're like, that's, that's fascinating. Let's explore that. And uh -huh. so from there, then you drill it down to a bunch of different ways you could do that. And we were thinking about things like connected transportation, cars or trains or planes. But healthcare really stood out. And so we said, all right, well, let's look at healthcare. And so we put together this study where we solicited all these healthcare organizations, these hospitals, a bunch of medical device makers. And we were like, we want to do this thing. We want to study not privacy issues, which is what healthcare cares about. We want to talk about patient safety issues. And yeah. interestingly, we were told, like everyone told us no all the time. Eventually, though, we persevered, we persisted, and we were eventually able to get, I think it was about a dozen healthcare organizations spread all across the United States to let us do this thing. It was eye-opening, the results. We found all these different ways that attackers could actually hurt or even kill patients, and in mm. some very unexpected ways. So at the time, there were researchers already looking at things that are what are known as active medical devices. So like a pacemaker, that's an active medical device, meaning it's actively doing something to the patients, manipulating your heartbeat. There were people looking at that kind of stuff and that's a very good place. I'm glad there are security researchers doing that because the connection is pretty logical, right? If you can manipulate that thing that manipulates your heartbeat, like that could hurt somebody. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, what about everything else, right? We're like, what about passive devices? What about things like that aren't directly doing something to the patient? So an example would yeah. be patient monitors. And those are the devices that are right next to the bedside in the patient's room. We've all seen them. They report like your heartbeat, your oxygen level, stuff like that. And we found that an attacker from anywhere in the world could access the device, could bypass authentication, which means they could 
manipulate it without needing to even log in effectively. And then they could perform what's called remote code execution. So they could actually get the device to behave in response to whatever they told it to do. So Uh that meant, for example, they could disable the alarms. So if you Uh think about a patient who's having like a heart attack or something or an irregular heartbeat, that should signal the central nursing station. But the nurses wouldn't know when this attack is happening because it would be replaying a healthy patient back to the central nursing station. And we're like, that's wild. No one even thought to look at something like that. Certainly not the people building these systems, not the people deploying them, not the healthcare organizations themselves, definitely not the the physicians and nurses. They're there to just use the technology. And it was really interesting for us to realize that in something as with as much oversight and as complex as healthcare is, there's whole areas that could materially hurt human beings that aren't even being considered. So it's, Stuff like that is really rewarding in a profession like this to be able to look at the problems that people might not have even thought, the the questions they don't even think to ask, we think to ask them, and then can explore, okay, well, what happens if X happens? Yeah, so you got that healthy paranoia. (laughs) It's There's paranoia. (laughs) I have a similar story that I want to share, and it was actually the moment, it was this crossroads for me between becoming a black hat and a white hat hacker. Okay. So I started, I've been a hacker since I was literally a little kid. My dad used to buy me He-Man toys that lit up and made sounds and stuff. And I would take them into my garage and tinker with them, pull them open, rip out the circuit boards. And I had these weird contraptions that I made with like nine volt batteries attached to speakers and attached to lights. And I would like poke around at things and tried to see if I could make it do something, you know, and usually what I was doing was just like closing a, a circuit, right? Closing yeah. a connection and it would and it would light up and it's like so a cool. five-year-old kid i was like yeah i'm doing yeah. something right and then i would try to put them back together again and i'd like swap out the wrong parts and just make these like really hideous frankenstein monsters and like, <laughs> my dad hated that i did that but obviously that was like that that was it that was in my dna yeah and then when when i was a teenager was when we had our kind of first home pcs and the very first internet like dial-up internet right and we had these for the young bucks out there, bulletin board systems where your computer <laughs> would dial into, let's say, something like a website, <laughs> what it would look like today. And there'd be chat boards and file servers and games and things like that that you could play. And so there were kind of above board general bulletin boards for social stuff and for companies. But then there were also ones that were, let's call it like the dark web. And I got pulled into that stuff because I wanted to play video games and I didn't have money to buy video games. My dad wouldn't because they were pretty dang expensive back then. So I started getting into kind of like the pirate scene and, uh, and that kind of connected me with a, a cohort of people, right. That were into this world and, and taught me how to hack, not only just cracking the, the games and stuff, but also how to hack into other BBSs. And uh. we started a little vulnerability or security well i don't know what we wanted to call it let's just say it was it was an it was an entrepreneurial organization (laughs) love it back then all of these different bbs's were run on different kinds of software right so like you had major bbs and you had vision x and you had renegade and you had wildcat and like all these different companies that would make their own platforms that people would put their sites on and so we had one that was kind of designed for security And so that company hired us kids to go and hack other people's sites and then leave a calling card that says, 
you should use this other software instead. Right. It's more secure. Yeah. This was before there were even like digital DMCA, like digital security laws back in the day. So it was kind of like wild west. But so we were hacking all these sites and, or these, these bulletin boards and whatnot. Okay. So I made a group of friends and we just were having fun hacking things and we were doing the phone freaking and we were trying to get free stuff and doing whatever. I took it as far as there was a, so, so as companies started to get connected, they would connect modems to their computers at their offices and whatnot. And I found that there was a, a resort hotel in my neighborhood where I grew up and I could see that they had the phone number of the modem printed on the side on a sticky note right on their desktop. So I, I jotted down that number and I went home and I dialed in and I was able to get into their system and basically give myself free hotel rooms and access to this resort. Wow. So as a teenager, my friends and I would go and hang out at the resort and we'd just be charging things to the room under a fictitious <laughs> name that was empty. And, and it was all fun and games, right? Having a great time, had some really nice, fun summers at the pool down in, in South Florida. And then things took a turn where the the friends that I was rolling with were getting more and more mischievous and started pushing the boundaries of what they could break into. And it started out just being for fun, just the kind of the hacker mission of just like, mm -hmm. I do it because I can, or I do it can because I, I want right. to get street cred or status. And a couple of these folks started going after businesses that you don't want to go after. So one of them started hacking into banks and another one started hacking into hospitals. And this was at the very beginning where they started doing digital health records. So software systems and these old kind of DOS programs, but they started putting in patient records into these, into these computers. And so this one kid broke in and he started fiddling with people's patient records, Yikes. switching around what conditions they have, their medications, things like that, just for fun, right? Just for, for shits and giggles. And uh, he got busted by the FBI, rightfully so. And he was still a minor at the time. And so he kind of went into the, the juvie system and all that. But then they started tracing the lines to other people in, in the group. Um, and so then there was a time where I had a van parked across the street from my house wow. for quite a long time. And I would, they were tapping my phone. I would hear the clicks on the phone calls when I'd pick up and be talking to my friends. And I'd look out the window and I'd see the van drive off and and it was, it was pretty scary. There was a time when somebody finally came up and knocked on the door and started asking me about the people that I knew. And, and, you know, I answered a bunch of questions and basically I just kind of came out and said, Hey, I'm just having fun. We're just playing around. I'm not involved in any of that stuff. Uh, and then they left me alone, but that was a real eye opener for me. In fact, this was actually right around the time that the movie hackers came out. Mm, so it's yeah. like this ridiculous like parallel with this movie, it was like, I don't, not only I don't want to go to jail, like, I don't want to like lose access to my computer for 10 years. Uh, <laughs> more importantly, the most important thing for me. But, but that was again, this moment where I realized that what we were doing had real consequences. Um, and so then I, I, I think that was a, a real day of maturity for me. And, uh, and ever since then I, I've aligned with the white hats and in my various roles in the tech world and at different companies with the honeypots and with, you know, the uh -huh. kind of the cat and mouse game, whenever people invariably hack into us has been, has been a really fun journey. But like yeah. I said, you know, it was something that was innate in me from the very beginning. And I didn't realize the, uh, the power of the, the talent and the skill that I had doing this. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy that I 
got away by the skin of my teeth. It was good that you moved away from that when you did, because yeah. that like what your friend was doing there with changing people's medical records. That's like, I mean, that could hurt, that could hurt somebody. That's serious. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I always love the, I love the war stories. I love the, the ethical hacking side of things because one is obviously you're doing it in kind of a safe environment, but two, it's, it's just fun. It's just so cool to totally. see how, how you can, you know, make things do some things that they weren't intended to do. You, you mentioned something or there was something that I saw about hacking into cars and things like that as well. So t- okay. tell me a little bit about that. Cause I'm curious what that looks like. Yeah, that was actually the original origin story of of the company. Really? So I, I mentioned my business partner came out of the PhD program at Hopkins, and along with a couple of his colleagues in the program and the professor who was leading the program, they were all doing this study together, where there was this system that was pretty much deployed in almost all major car makers. I mean, Nissan, Mazda, Ford, like everyone was using this thing. And part of the anti-theft mechanism. And it's this part of the ignition sequence. It's called the immobilizer. What the immobilizer does is the immobilizer basically has a communication between the onboard computer in the vehicle and the chip that's in the car key. Like, you know, car keys are big. There's a chip Uh in there. And that chip communicates with the, the car. And what the immobilizer does is it basically is interrogating the key to say, is this the authentic key? If it is, I'm going to allow the engine to start. And if it's not, I'm going to immobilize the engine. And at the time, that particular system was considered to be, I mean, literally was stated in public materials that it couldn't be hacked. (laughs) And Challenge accepted. A challenge accepted. That is exactly (laughs) what the guys at the the Hopkins team decided. They're like, all right, well, you said it. So, I mean, that's not good. Let's find out. And um, so they went out and they did this study. They built a, a weaponized software radio. They reverse engineered the cryptographic algorithm between the two. And they ultimately were able to actually start this Ford Explorer, or maybe it was an Escape, a Ford vehicle of some sort, without the authentic key. What was really fascinating, I mean, not only is that fascinating, that was like you started a car without the key to it. That's pretty cool. But what was really interesting about it was when they went through the responsible disclosure process. Responsible disclosure is when a security researcher finds a problem and then discloses it to the manufacturer, says, look, here's what I found. And if they can recommend how to fix it, they'll tell you how to fix it. If they don't know how to fix it, they'll just say, at least here's the problem. And the way it works today, 2023 and beyond, is that most companies, not all, but I would say the majority, more than 50% of companies who receive security research will engage with the security researcher and say, they'll acknowledge it in some way. They're like, all right, we tried to uh-huh. fix it or we found that that's not how it works or but whatever, they're collaborating. But when this was happening, this was back in 2005, there was not that type of relationship. It was very adversarial. Uh-huh. Most companies wound up, would sue actually researchers uh-huh. who would do this kind of stuff. But Ford was at least responsive. What was really interesting about their response was they said, doesn't work that way. It's there's more to it than you described. You didn't actually do what you said you did. And uh, the team uh, on the behind this research was they were kind of like scratching their heads because they're like, <laughs> I sent you a video of me starting a car yeah. with this weaponized soft. What are you talking about? <laughs> like it's on camera. And there's a whole write up of the whole thing. And they're like, no, nah, it's just it's a little more complicated than what you described. And uh, uh, my business partner, Steve, he turns to one of the other guys and he's like, do you think they're talking about? And he, he, he mentioned this 
really trivial part of the code. It was this like error correcting. It was a super, super small thing. It was such a small part of the project that it bare, I think it only had like one sentence in the whole like 20 page report because it wasn't a significant thing. They're like, are you talking about that? This little thing uh-huh. that like took us 20 minutes to break. And uh, that what followed is what Steve calls his favorite five minutes of silence ever. Because they said, hold, please. They put the phone on hold. They're clearly on the other end being like, uh-oh, this guy, these guys actually did it. And then they come back on after this like long pause. They're talking about themselves. They're like, all right, we'll be at your lab tomorrow. <laughs> they get on plane, they fly out. And, and so they fix the thing. And that's, that's ultimately the goal of security research, right? You want yeah. the whole purpose is to make systems better. And that resistance that comes from people who build things, that's actually pretty common. There's probably people listening to the show right now who fall into one of two buckets that are, well, there's three buckets, but they probably fall mostly into the first two. They are people who don't know what the problems are. Uh Two, they are aware of the problems, but they don't believe that they are problems. And that's sort of what Ford was in. Uh And then the third is they recognize that problems exist and how do I improve them? My hope is Uh put everyone in that third bucket. That's what our profession exists to do. But most people probably fall in those first two. They don't know what their problems are, or if they are aware of their problems, they minimize or disregard them. So so I think the challenge that I deal with with all the clients and all the different companies that I've worked with is there's this spectrum of paranoia, right? That is either I, like that. I, I ignore those problems or I'm so paranoid that I'm trying to fill every single hole. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, you have speed plus risk. And on the other hand, you have, right, you have security plus well, the opposite of speed, right? So like yeah, yeah. you have companies that either just say, you know, we either don't have the time or we can't afford to deal with these security issues. We just have to keep moving as quickly as we can, typically in the in the early startup stages. And we're going to either pretend that those things aren't risks or we're going to leave ourselves exposed. Right. And ultimately, they will ultimately get hacked. It's a matter of, of when, not if. Yep. To the other side of the spectrum, which is like, there are so many issues. There's so many things that that we could deal with. We could spend all of our time and energy trying to be as secure as possible. And that's when you get up into obviously large enterprises and, and uh, you know high stakes things like healthcare and, and things like that. Hey everyone, Eric here. So every startup founder on earth is searching for the elusive product market fit. It's the thing that unlocks growth and scale and the thing that separates the successes from the failures. But if I asked you what it meant, could you define it? Could you point at it and measure it? Could you break product market fit down into its essential components and have a systematic way to improve them, to unlock product market fit and get to scale? Probably not. So that's why I created a new tool called the Product Market Fit Scorecard, the ultimate guide to unlocking scale. It's a free and simple assessment that you can use with your team to break down product market fit into its 10 key factors, identify where your weak points are, and give you clear and concise recommendations to improve. So just go to pmfscorecard.com and download it now. So in, in the early stages, the early growth stages of a company, what is like the the right size or the right amount of security? What are the components or the pieces that they should be focusing on? Yeah, I don't think people should live on either end of that spectrum. 
Maybe right. if you're talking about like nation state level assets, maybe you should be on the like super secure end of the super right. secure, slow at all costs end of the spectrum. But anyone who's building a commercial business, right? You're building some software that solves some problem and someone's going to pay you for that. There is a middle ground. And how right. you find the middle ground is it's like an, the way to think about it is like an S curve, right? So an S curve kind of starts flat and then it, it increases vertically and then it flattens again. And I refer to this idea as the Goldilocks principle of like how we should think about investing in security. And the yeah. way that that S-curve works, if we're sort of the two axes are effort relative to number of vulnerabilities discovered. And that's the important distinction we have to make, right? Is that vulnerabilities, they exist. So anyone that who's listening to this show, who's building something, there are security vulnerabilities in what you're building. And that's not a value okay. judgment. That's just the nature of building things. There's going to be flaws. <laughs> the question is, are we doing the appropriate amount of effort to find and remediate the majority of them with the acceptance that it won't be 100% of them? The problem <laughs> is that what most companies do is they live in that the bottom part of the S-curve where it's flat, where it's almost like they put in so little effort that they get <laughs> no results. And it's almost like what little effort you put in, might as well put in none. So a perfect example right. of people who fall into this category are people who are building something and they're like, oh, we should probably get some security testing done. Let me, I've heard this term penetration testing. Let me get that done. And then they go Google it and they find somebody who's going to charge them like $5,000. That is not a pen test. That's someone running a scanner against your, your system. It can only look for known issues. It has lots of false positives. And uh -huh. basically what you've done is you spent $5,000 to not really help yourself very much. That's where most people live. That's the bottom of the S-curve. The top of the S-curve <laughs> Almost no one lives there. That's where you're putting in too much effort. You're seeing diminishing returns. You're investing and investing and investing, but you're not necessarily finding more and more vulnerabilities. Where everyone uh. wants to live is in the middle of that S-curve where you're getting a very high return of vulnerabilities in exchange for the <laughs> amount of effort, which is dollars, that you're putting into <laughs> it. So I can't necessarily <laughs> give a dollar amount that's universal for everybody. In my book, I wrote a book called Hackable that uh, I have a whole chapter that lays out like here's how you might set your budget but oh, there, there is this sweet spot that any organization can calibrate for their own organization it's gonna be different for every organization but there is a sweet spot that's affordable like within the range of affordability for a company of each different scale your threat model changes as you grow and where you can <laughs> actually eradicate that sort of that that twist in your stomach where you're like really not doing enough for security and i know it and this uh -huh. helps you get yeah. rid of that because it's spending a little more than zero, but it gets you to be <laughs> able to build a better, more secure solution. Well, so 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 tell me a little bit more about, about your book then. So this is a book that's designed to help business owners and so on do what exactly? Yeah, so I wrote this book for essentially three audiences that overlap around the same concern. They look at it slightly differently and I address that in the book, but uh, CTOs or equivalent, right? So people responsible for the technology of a system. That's one audience. The second audience is developers themselves. So the people who are actually mm -hmm. doing the hands-on building. And then the third audience is security professionals who maybe don't know as much. They might know about one part of whatever their profession within the security community is, but they might not know about ethical hacking. They might not know about application security, stuff like that. And uh -huh. the reason I wrote this book for the particular combination of people is because in in the context of running this business that's ethical hacking, 
I talk to people every day, whether that's our customers or prospective customers or people I meet after I deliver a keynote, stuff like that. And I found that almost everybody, no matter geographic location, no matter maturity of the company, no matter size of revenue, no matter size by headcount, everyone has the same problems when it comes to how you huh. secure their solution. And I thought that was really interesting once I noticed that. It's like every conversation, I'm, if there's like these 10 problems and every conversation I'm talking about three to five of them every time. And I thought that was really fascinating. So then I started thinking about, well, how do people generally approach solving those problems? And that was <laughs> really the lightning bolt. I was like, you have to write this book because I realized that most people talk about solving those problems 180 degrees wrong. And that's wild when you think about that, right? Because if we play that out, what's happening is this. Someone says, I see a problem and I'm going to solve it by building some sort of system to solve that for whoever has this problem. So I'm going to go build this software or this company or whatever. They go out, they set out to build this thing. And then they realize in the process, like, oh, security is going to be a problem for me. So how do I address those problems? So they research, how do I solve this type of security problem? And the information they get to solve their problem is wrong. That's wild. And I, I just, I can't stand <laughs> to let that exist anymore. So I wrote a book. That's why I appear on podcasts yeah. when awesome people like you ask me to come up here. It's why I give keynotes to correct those misconceptions. So, so what are like the top three patterns that you see over and over again? Well, we just talked about one for sure. The underinvesting. Yeah. people are always, I mean, perpetually underinvesting, and it's partly because they don't understand the problem. They don't understand what security is or how to do it right. And that's also uh -huh. exacerbated by the, the security community itself. I think we've done this problem to ourselves. I think there's a lot of people out there willing to sell nonsense. There, there are a lot of organizations willing to sell nonsense because the buyer doesn't know the difference. And that's uh -huh. an unfortunate reality. Uh -huh. But uh, underinvesting is a big one. Another big uh -huh. one is getting the wrong thing. So uh -huh. I used this term before, penetration testing. That's sort of become the catch-all of all security testing. But it isn't a catch-all. It's a specific thing. There's other uh -huh. types of security testing too. And people, these terms have just been so grossly misused and the people who buy security services don't necessarily even know what is there. They're like, look, just solve this problem. I don't care what you call it. I don't care what you do. Just solve the problem. <laughs> I totally get that. Like, that's what I want of anyone I buy from anything I buy from anyone. I'm like, I don't care about the jargon. Just solve the problem. But the problem is that they wind up buying the wrong thing because they don't know the difference. And there are people willing to sell the wrong thing. So understanding the difference, that's one of the, there's a whole chapter dedicated to equipping the reader, like what is the right, what are the, even the differences? How do you know what to, how do you approach that? And then another common misconception is how to even work with a security company. How much information should you share? A lot of people have this misconception. I use a metaphor to describe this one. They think we should do it, what's called black box, which is like the attacker doesn't have information. So I'm going to make the, my security partner not have information. And I'm like, that's nuts. That's like, you walk into the doctor, something's ailing you. That's why you went to the doctor. And the doctor's like, cool, tell me your symptoms. And you're like, nope, you figure it out. <laughs> I know the symptoms, but I'm not going to tell you. You got to figure it out. You're the expert. It's like, what? You would never yeah. do that. You would never do that. But people do that with their security all the time. Wow. Yeah. So not even having enough awareness to know what your situation is to even describe to somebody. Yeah. That's interesting. I used to get brought in. So I was a fractional CTO. I would be sort of CTO consultant and get brought in through referrals and, and so on. But I'd work with these different companies and there'd always be 
a sort of a module around around security. And I do these sort of security assessments. And just as part of that, I would just ask for access to to pretty much everything. And I would just see how far I could push it. You know, can you give me like, I need root access to your database. I need write access to your code repository. And I would just say I need it. And they would just, most of the time, just give it to me. And they would never even ask, why do you need this? Yeah. And then that was basically the first chapter of the report is like, these are all the things that I asked for that I didn't need access to. And you just willingly gave it to me without even asking why. Stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So trying That's to create great. a culture of security, even just caring about security. So because a lot of times what would happen is I'd get brought in to companies that have to do some kind of an audit, right? There's some uh-huh. sort of ISO certification or HIPAA or PCI DSS, whatever. And they would just say, oh, we need somebody to kind of like prep us for that audit. And so then they'd come in and they'd just be like, cool, like these are all the different check boxes we have to mark off so that we can pass the audit. Huh. I said, great. Okay. So what? You pass the audit and then you get hacked the next day. Um, do you think that they're going to renew your certification if they know that you didn't, you know, continue those practices that you, you promised to do and, and showed evidence of doing in the audit? And so basically there's sort of like 364 days out of the uh-huh. year that you're not <laughs> presenting your audit findings, that is where, you know, most of the vulnerabilities come in. And, and you had mentioned sort of like the areas that people like to focus on. We are so terrible at, at social engineering, social hacking. Yeah. We, we tend to put way too much trust in not only people like me, but even our own employees. And so not having really good policies around, you know, need to know is one of the, the kind of fun, most fun and most common ways that I see people get hacked. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> we should always be skeptical of people asking information. I, I remember this yeah. like years and years and years ago. I was uh, I was in the process of trying to find a therapist, and so like the first, so, you know, you go like you do the like first consult or whatever with a few of them. And I remember this this one I went to. They give me this. Well, you have to like fill out a form as your patient intake form or whatever. And on this form was so much information that I was like, you don't need any of this stuff. Yeah. to understand like <laughs> why I'm anxious about a thing. Like you don't need nah. to know my medical history and all this stuff. And so I left, I left most of it blank with the understanding that when we, when I sat down with the person, if any of it was really relevant, like, you know, I do need to know your medications cause it might be impacting your mental state. Like if it was going to, sure. But I left most of it blank. We go, we sit down and the session was real bad because she was very, she was hostile to me almost like, why did you not fill all this stuff out? And I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm just preserving my, you know, my privacy. I, I don't see why you need that information. I'm happy to supply it if you need it, but let's talk about it first. <laughs> and <laughs> she was so thrown by me putting that, like, just little bit of friction that she didn't know yeah. how to recover from it. And I was like, am I giving you therapy right now? Like, who's giving who therapy yeah. in this situation? Like, it's okay. You're fine. But, um, but I think that people don't enough do that. We're like, oh, if someone's asked, especially if it's someone who seems of authority, uh, I can mm. totally see why you as this trusted expert come in and, so, and you say you need something. They're like, all right, sure. I get yeah. it. But we should pause a little bit and say like, do, do we need to give this? Yeah. So obviously from a, from a consumer side, uh, it's really critical that we're sort of mindful and protective of our data and our privacy. But so even as a, as a, as a company, we are stewards of our customers' data. And so one of the recommendations I always give is like, don't ask for anything you don't need. Mm-hmm. Certainly don't store anything you don't need. Yeah. Right? 
and as much as possible, even delegate, right? Using payment providers and, and things of that nature, um, delegate it so that if you do get hacked, you just say, hey, we don't even have the data, right? There's nothing here to, to protect, which, you know, to me, it's sort of like the first, the first layer of security is like, well, don't have anything like, don't, you know, reduce the risk, right? Don't have anything that anybody would want to steal. Because yep. again, it's not a matter of if it's when. So what, maybe just what are some some easy or or you know simple recommendations that you can give startup founders to to help protect themselves with maybe not a, a huge lift? Yeah. So where I would absolutely start, and this is for any organization of any size in any business, any degree of maturity, is start by understanding your threat model. So if you have one already. You want to update it. If you don't have one already, you want to establish it. And I can quickly describe what a threat model is and how to do it. I also can send some resources. So anyone listening, if they want to download an exercise, how to do this, that's definitely available. But basically, here's what a threat model is. A threat model is a way, it's an exercise that you go through so that you can understand where to prioritize investing time, effort, money, and resources. And, And that's important because... This is one of the problems that I think a lot of people have when they think about security is they're like, I don't know, give me the checklist. Give me the list of stuff I got to do. I'll go do this uh-huh. stuff. I'm good at following lists. But the problem yeah. is that's not actually the right way to do security. The right way to do security is to understand your unique threat scenario. And then from there, that's how you determine what should your list be. Right. So a threat model answers three questions. What do you want to protect? So these are tangible things like, is there data that you care about? Competitive intelligence? Is there business intelligence? Oh, there's intangible things that are like reputation, mm-hmm. brand, stuff like that. So assets, the first question, what do I want to protect? The second question is, who do I want to defend against? So now this is thinking about, are we talking about nation states organized crime here? Are we talking about the small group Hackers like the story you were telling, Eric, people who are interested in notoriety or just interested, can they do it? Are we talking about corporate espionage, stuff like that? So that's the second question. Who am I worried about defending against? Uh And then the third question is, where will I be attacked? So these are what are called attack surfaces. So this would be, let's say in the case of building some sort of web application, you'd be talking about any input field would be a perfect example of attack surface. So anywhere the information is input by the user, like a login page, as an example, you put your username, your password, that's an attack surface because the attacker could interact with that. So now once you've sort of thought about these three questions, now what you're able to do is to say, okay, well, given what we care most about protecting and given the type of attacker that we care about who might be interested in that thing we care about, and given the way that we built the system that might provide access to that thing, Now we know where we should start thinking about spending person power, development time, spend dollars. Where should Mm -hmm. we spend that? And that's going to be far more effective than I just found a list of like the 10 best practices that tell me some things about passwords and some things about user management. It's like, no, focus on your unique scenario. Because even within, if you think about anyone listening to this, right? If you think about what is it that your company does? And then think about your most direct lookalike competitor, whoever's the closest to you. Are you two the same? And I think everyone would say no. So if you're not the same, even two companies who ostensibly to an outsider might look very similar, they're different. 
And so the threat model is going to be different. The defense scenario is going to be different. How they'd be attacked is going to be different. So start with the threat model. And then from there, that will dictate to you where you can invest time, effort, money, and resources. That's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about it in terms of like, like a kingdom, right? And you've got your treasure right. trove and it's sort of like, there might be some buildings or some forts that, you know what, if we lose it, it's not really going to, going to impact us too much, but then we've got our treasury and we need mm-hmm. our moats and we need our, our boiling oil and our, our archers 100%. and everything. Right. And so these different layers of separation and of security around our most important assets. So, so that's kind of interesting is like, you can look at your whole company and then pick what are the different things that I want to defend, what kind of attacks could reach them, right? What's the line or the connection? And then how do we, how do we set up those different defenses? So what might be maybe like, like what are some examples of, I think it starts with that. What are those assets? What are those things that you want to defend? Mm -hmm. And obviously like our database is, is an important thing, right? Protecting personal information, financial information, health information. What are some things that that maybe people don't think about or that, that aren't incredibly obvious as an asset or something that they would want to defend? Uh, let me illustrate that with a story because yeah. I, this story, as it was happening, I was like, I'm going to write this in a book someday. And then it did. I wrote it <laughs> in my book. So I'm talking to this CTO of this company that's involved in essentially the ticketing process for events and festivals and stuff like that. And... So I was chatting with this person and the CTO says, oh, well, we don't, we really don't have anything to protect. I mean, we have email addresses of our users and like, yeah, that would kind of stink if those got stolen. But like, it's not like we have their passwords. We just have like a list of emails. And I was like, hold on a second. Maybe I don't understand your business. Don't you provide tickets to events? And they said, yeah, yeah, no, that's what our business does. I was like, well, what if an attacker were to make it so that none of the tickets worked? They sh- the guest, the patron shows up and their ticket doesn't work. And they're like, oh, that would be really bad. That would, ca- that would create chaos. It's like, okay, just- well, what about the opposite? What about if an attacker, what if someone could buy one ticket and just use it more than once and they could bring 20, 30 of their friends into the festival and they'd be like, oh, that would be, that'd be pretty bad for revenue. We might, not <laughs> lose, we might lose the contract with that festival organizer next year. Yeah. I'm like, see what I'm getting at, right? Like you have more than just <laughs> your like in from the data. And that's where I think a lot of people struggle is they just think about assets as data. They think about, well, what, what sits on our file server, right? Uh-huh. And so data is, uh-huh. is important, especially if that data has monetary value to an attacker. Right. So it's not just about losing the, it's not just about losing the account information. It's also making the, the application work in a way that it wasn't intended. 100% to gain access yeah. or limit access. Yeah, I talk about this idea that the difference between some of the more commodity type approaches to how you think about security and security testing, the difference between that and what actual where the actual magic happens, there's uh. this pretty significant separation. And some of the baseline stuffs are like running scanners, looking for known vulnerabilities, stuff like that. But some of the higher order stuff are things, one is right along the lines of what you're talking about, which is called functionality abuse. Uh-huh. So that's where you use the way a system works in the attack. So yeah. if you think about how a yeah. system is supposed to work, are there aspects to that where you can actually use that to attack either other things within the system or attack other systems? And these this is the most common these are some of the most commonly overlooked areas where people are limited to thinking about, well, how do I make sure that my 
our customer list doesn't get stolen. Okay, that's important. <laughs> but what if you you're violate your customer and your customer doesn't <laughs> want to work with you anymore? What if you do something that causes someone to be unable to generate revenue, whether it's you or some other third party? Like These are the problems that people really should be thinking about. Interesting. So there's there's kind of a tangible asset that you want to protect somebody from stealing. There's mm-hmm. people can can tear you down so that you can't operate. But mm-hmm. then there's this mind control, right? Where they can take <laughs> over your system and use it for nefarious purposes. That's that's mm-hmm. pretty interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And so d- does your book Hackable sort of teach people how to think like a hacker and and kind of think up these scenarios? How could things go wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of a life mission for someone to want to really le- learn how to think like a hacker. Uh, yeah. But yes, in the book, I address that by describing what are the misconceptions around how we even think about security, how should we think about it differently, how do attackers think. I actually just gave a TED Talk a few months ago that talks about this exactly. It's called Why You Need to Think Like a Hacker. This is an idea mm-hmm. that I'm really passionate about. And um, any TED Talk needs to speak to a general audience. So I had to figure out how do I take my niche expertise, which is building better, more secure systems, software systems, and make that relevant to the 98% of the people in the world who have nothing to do with building software systems. And I realized that it was this idea, right? It's like, how do hackers think? And I realized that because hackers think differently than the way most people think, that leads to new ways to approaching a situation. And if you can look at your situation differently, then that reveals new pathways to achieve your goals. So what hackers want to do, whether they're the good kind or the bad kind, is hackers want to say, well, the system's supposed to do X, can I make it do Y? And Mm -hmm. that thought process can be applied to everything in life, right? Like I want to get a promotion at work. Most people do it by doing X. Well, what if instead I did Y? Or what if X didn't matter? What if X didn't apply? What if X was impossible? And asking those what if questions helps us find new ways to to achieve whatever it is we're trying to achieve. So thinking like a hacker, that TED Talk gives great detail about how to think like a hacker. And yeah. I think that people should not just about securing systems, but in all aspects of their life, we should think that way. That's interesting. So it's essentially, fundamentally, it's a contrarian way of thinking. If everyone is zigging, how do I zag, right? Or what opportunities are available to me if I take a, a road less traveled? That's really... That's yeah, really there's, there's three parts to how to think like a hacker. And the first one I talk about is to be contrarian. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly so it. So are there any kind of like fun examples of something that's, well, uh, that, that could be understood by a layman, let's say, where somebody either has or could think like a hacker to to some benefit? Definitely. Okay. So, all right, I'll use a non-technical example. We've all stood in line, right? Uh-huh. Standing in line sucks. <laughs> no one wants, well, <laughs> most people don't want to stand in line. I, I should I should say I should not make a universal statement. There was one time when uh, we were doing a book signing at a security conference and this like super long line, you know, wrapped out the room around the corner kind of thing. And we ran out of books. And this person who was the first person who wasn't going to get a book, uh, you know, finally gets to the front. This guy had been standing in line for like 45 minutes. And uh, I wasn't uh, wasn't the person in this particular exchange. It was someone from my team, but person from my team says to this guy like oh i'm so sorry we've run out of books and the guy's like oh that's what you're doing here i was wondering what this line was for <laughs> i'm like oh, like you stood in line for 45 minutes and you don't even know why so not everyone hates hates standing in line but i hate standing in line and yeah. uh and i think a lot of people do 
And so uh, there's an example of contrarian thinking when it comes to lines, because the way that most right. people think about lines is they're like, all right, I gotta, I'm going into this venue, I have to stand in this line. Where's the end of the line? That's the way most people think. That's very, uh, you know, herd mentality, which I get. Uh-huh. I'm done. I don't mean that in a judgmental way. Like as humans, we're wired to follow patterns. That's that comes from like our caveman days, right? When we uh-huh. needed to observe patterns so that we could preserve attention span and energy to look out for the million things that were going to kill us at any given moment. Uh-huh. We we need to follow patterns. It's like wired into us. But I one time went to a bar to celebrate a friend's birthday, and when I got to the bar, there was a super long line. I didn't want to wait in line. I just wanted to be inside with my friends. And so I did what hackers do is I said, is there a different way? And so as I'm assessing the situation, I realized there's like the conventional way you can go in. There's the line. Uh, but there's another entrance. There's the VIP entrance. And there's no line. There's no wait. And so now I had a new challenge, which was, well, how can I go in by the VIP entrance, even though I don't have VIP permissions? And so what I did was I just, I walked, walked right up to the VIP hostess. I was like, hey, I'd like to come in here. And she's kind of like, okay, are you on the list? And I'm like, no, I'm not on the list, but I'm here to celebrate my friend's birthday. And uh, and she's like, oh, well, your friend must be on the list. Is, is your friend on the list? And I was like, I actually didn't know. I, I didn't know. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if my friend's on the list, but wouldn't it be awesome if you let me in anyway? Like I'd be in there, I'd be <laughs> spending money. I'm a fun person. Like this will be great. And uh <laughs> It's like totally ridiculous. Like, why not? Why not just shoot the shot? And she sort of thinks about it for a second. She's a little taken aback because I don't think anyone's ever really done that. Like, I'm sure yeah. people have tried to talk their way in, but I don't think anyone's been like, yeah, but you should let me in. You know? And um, so she thinks about it for a second and she looks down at her clipboard and she's like, yeah, that does sound pretty good. <laughs> and she like opens <laughs> the velvet rope and just lets me in. So I didn't have to wait in line. And uh, it was, it was great. And now, that's a ridiculous story. Like, who cares? This isn't life or death. I mean, this isn't like hacking patient monitors or anything. But it really shows what happens when you can kind of break away from the pattern and say, like, how do I think about this differently? How can I achieve my goal in a way that's unusual or atypical? Like, what's the opposite of the way I'm supposed to do it? And yeah. I think about that story whenever I think about contrarian thinking, because everyone can relate to having stood in line at some point. And... That's what happens when we start asking yeah. those questions. Now, most likely, in most cases, the person's going to say, like, no, you can't come in here. You got to get in that line, <laughs> get in the normal line. It's like, all right, but at least I tried. I, like, probed that as an opportunity, and in this right. case, it worked out. Well, and you talked about your kind of attack surfaces. People are the most vulnerable attack surface in any totally. organization, right? So they, we, we don't think about, or maybe we do a little bit, but don't think about persuasion as a hacking vector, but it's in fact the most valuable and, and uh, easy one to to break into because people yeah. are are prone to persuasion. Yep. Um, one of my fa- my favorite book, other than Hackable, related <laughs> to this is is Kevin Mitnick's Ghosts in the Wires. Mm-hmm. So I grew yeah. up with with Kevin Mitnick. As I mentioned, I was you know the phone freaking days, and he was absolutely the man. He was the best yeah. hacker in the world for for much of the eighties and seventies, eighties and nineties. And this book is just this phenomenal firsthand recount of his of his epic hacks into some, you know, the biggest telcos and, and companies in the world. And I was expecting him to, you know, recount a lot of these technical aspects of how he broke into these various systems. It is almost entirely 
social engineering. It's uh, all about persuasion. It's mm -hmm. walking in somewhere, acting like you belong. It's talking to somebody, acting like you know them or you know somebody that works there or you used to work there or what have you. And it got to a point in the book, and, and not to spoil it too much, where the FBI is trying to track him and he ends up hacking the FBI <laughs> <laughs> and was able to monitor and see where they were tracking him for the, because of these reasons. So, so that's, I think something that, that I think of as like the, 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 the layman way when we think about hacking is, well, it's really about persuasion. Yep. I totally agree with that. I think that's a, yeah. a skill that's not really taught in, uh, well, people who are pursuing social engineering, like a hundred percent, everyone's doing that, but everyone else. Yeah. It's not, I mean, security is not very well taught in an academic setting already as it is. And there is definitely no courses about the the principles of persuasion and what makes someone build trust with someone else and that kind of stuff. Definitely. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah it's the same as sort of uh, modifying a, a, a key to, to start a car. Um, you know, when you have persuasion, you're able to use that person as a way to either gain entry or to to you know do something that you want them to do so yeah so yeah so i i i i love that so i want to make sure that that anyone can find it. so first off the book is is hackable right uh -huh. yep and they can find it i assume anywhere books are sold yep is that right yep. and yep. then Amazon your 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 ted speaker as well so where can they find uh your ted talks yeah i'd say the easiest thing to do you can find info on the book, on the TED Talk, on our security consulting services, on how to follow me on social media. Just go to tedharrington.com yeah. and everything is right there. There you go. Awesome. All right. We'll make sure to link all that in the show notes and everything. Um, and then as far as your, your company's concerned, ISE, um, so what kind of, what kind of services you offer in sort of a, a, a quick pitch, if you will? So we help companies build better, more secure systems. And so those services include security testing, like pen testing or vulnerability assessments, stuff like that. Um, but also just consulting, design consulting, helping people make better decisions. And one of the things I think that's really powerful, especially about early stage companies who look at something and they say, well, we can't get testing yet because it's not really built. That's the best time to have security <laughs> because you can talk yeah. about it at a design level and say, let's make this circle and this triangle interact in this way instead of you already built the circle and the triangle and they don't operate that way now you have to rebuild them and i think that's that's the beauty of uh, the most effective way to do it awesome so so a company can engage with you during that design process to sort of consult and help them think through uh how to design it in a, in a secure way kind yeah. of as you mentioned like how do we design you know the moats and the turrets and so on totally. to defend these assets yeah it's awesome. so much that. more efficient that way it takes so much less effort that way it's uh it's less expensive just in terms of dollars out the door like it's definitely the way to go and even that met that's such a cool metaphor as as i'm just as you're describing the castle because i think people can visualize that right it would be like you go out and you build the castle and you didn't you built the moats wrong and then right. the tester comes in is like you got to build this moat in a different way you're like that's gonna be hard <laughs> to go rebuild moats but if instead you're like what do i need to build and you're like here's how you build a moat they build yeah. the right moat the first time that's that's where the huge savings comes in. Uh, that's fantastic. Wow. Well, um, I appreciate so much having you on the show today. This was a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, everyone go to tedharrington.com, find him, follow him, watch his TED Talks, and uh, read the book Hackable. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. <laughs>